Welcome to the Tuesday Night IBS Podcast. I'm your host, Johanna Ruby. The podcast connects patients and providers with information and education about the diagnosis and treatment of IBS and related diagnoses. Each month, we feature a new episode with guest experts in the field of motility and neurogastroenterology who share the latest science and data for diagnosing and treating these conditions, as well as conversation about their impact on a patient's quality of life. Just a reminder, the information provided in this podcast is for informational and educational use only and should never be substituted for medical advice. Always work with your doctor to diagnose and treat your IBS symptoms effectively. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Tuesday night IBS podcast episode. I'm Johanna Ruddy, your host. And today I'm so excited because we are going to be talking about food as medicine and all things diet related, um, not just in relation to the low FODMAP diet, which many of you are familiar with and that we've talked about on previous Twitter chats, but a whole lot of other things diet related and who better to talk to us about that than Kate Scarlotta. We're so excited to have her as our host for December and as our guest uh, this day on our podcast episode. So um, Kate Scarlotta has a master's in public health and is a registered dietitian. She is based in Boston and is also a New York Times uh, bestselling author. She has 30 plus years of digestive health experience, and she specializes in treatments for IBS, for celiac disease, inflammatory bowel disease, mast cell activation syndrome, and small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO. Her passion is really to educate health professionals on gut health topics, as well as patient advocacy. And she has a great patient advocacy campaign called hashtag I believe in your story, which has been pretty active in recent years. She's the co-author of the New York Times bestseller, The 21-Day Tummy Diet and The 21-Day Tummy Cookbook. She's also the author of The Complete Idiot's Guide to Eating Well with IBS, which I just love that title, and her most recent book, co-author of the Low FODMAP Diet Step-by-Step. You're familiar with Kate on Twitter, I'm sure, and in a lot of publications in peer-reviewed journals. We're so excited to have her. So welcome, Kate. How are you? I am great. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited to talk about my favorite topic, food. (laughs) Yes, me too. You know, I... I I'm calling this episode food as medicine. And I'm borrowing that from your friend and mine, Dr. Bill Che, um, which I just think is such a great way to think about diet in relation to digestive health and digestive disorders is to think about food as medicine. So, um, in that kind of framework, let's dive right in. Um, can you, can you tell us a little bit more about what a GI dietitian does and how that might be a little bit different than just maybe a general diet, um, advisor and what that role might look like in digestive health management? Absolutely. So it's important to understand that, you know, a registered dietitian is a credentialed food and nutrition expert. At a minimum, they have a Bachelor of Science. Most have some advanced degree beyond a bachelor's. 
Um, they need to include at least or have experienced 1,200 supervised hours, and they have to pass a national registration exam to become a registered dietitian. The term nutritionist or diet advisor can really be used by anyone, and it's important as patients and clinicians that we absolutely know the difference. Um, when it comes to a GI dietitian, there really is no specific credential at this time to specify that someone has an expertise in GI, although that's coming. Um, but for now, this is a dietitian that really focuses their time um, working in the GI field and working with patients um, with GI disorders. And that's really where they, where they lay their, you know, their hat. Um, and just to further, you know, what does a dietitian do? I think it's important, especially in the GI space, um, you know, one of the questions that many dietitians start with is what is your relationship with food? Because many people with GI disorders experience symptoms eating that can really negatively impact their relationship with food. So we start there, um, but we also do detailed histories looking at their lifestyle, their nutrient intake, any past uh, weight loss or gain, looking at past medical history and surgical history and screening for food insecurity, which, you know, now is really a growing problem, uh, sort of downstream effects of the pandemic impacting one in seven families. So that's another area that GI dietitians are screening for, as well as disordered eating or eating disorders, which we know disordered eating impacts about 23% of our GI patients. So very important that dietitians are screening for that. And then with all of that together, they they really devise a personalized nutrition plan for the patient. There isn't a one size fits all diet for everyone with GI disorders, and there isn't a one size fits all diet for each and every one of us. So it's really personalized. Wow, that's great. Absolutely. I think at that is important to emphasize that there is not a one size fits all diet, because I think that that sometimes is a misconception, particularly amongst patients with IBS, when all they hear about is just a specific type of diet. Usually it's the low FODMAP. That's kind of the one that is forefront in their mind, what, which can be wonderful for many patients, but for some patients is not quite so effective. And they think that if that doesn't work, then no other diet therapies will be beneficial. And I think that that's important to emphasize that just because one works for one patient doesn't mean it might, it's going to automatically work for you, but there you can personalize what might work for you working with a dietitian. Absolutely. And just to jet off that a little bit, you know, there's so many, uh, you know, messages out there about a plant-based diet and fiber, fiber fueled fiber, fiber, you know, <laughs> Again, if you're a patient, you're thinking more is better and I've got to eat a ton of fiber. And we all know that in IBS, that may or may not be helpful. So, you know, it, it, there's so many just broad stroked nutrition recommendations and you really can't feel bad if you can't tolerate a lot of fiber. That doesn't mean you're, you know, bad at nutrition. It's just that your diet, uh, you know, needs to be individualized to what's going on in your body. That's great. Yes. So, so going further, we know that diet therapies are more and more common and patients 
many times start looking at the role of diet early on when they start experiencing digestive symptoms, sometimes trying to identify triggers that are leading to those symptoms. And um, at what point should patients decide that they need to reach out for professional help in examining their diet? Or should that just be automatically the first thing that they do when they start experiencing digestive symptoms? Well, I'm a believer that if, if you can have accessibility to a dietitian, and many patients don't have accessibility to a GI focused dietitian, many just don't have there. We need more, just like there's yeah. a need for more GI psychologists. Right. But I think everyone really should see an RD. We all eat and we could all benefit from a little tweak and modification in our diet. So I think if you have a GI disorder and um, you find food related symptoms when you eat, you, you note that your symptoms are exacerbated. That's an automatic, if you can see a dietitian, absolutely. Um, but I also think unintended weight loss, or if you find that your list of foods is really becoming smaller, um, the goal of a GI dietitian will always be for adding variety and more to an individual's diet over time. Sometimes we restrict a little just to see if we can identify triggers better, but the ultimate end goal for a dietitian consult is to expand the patient's diet and expand their life and their food, you know, enhance their food related quality of life. So, um, you know, to answer, yeah, everyone should see one, but if food is really exacerbating your symptoms, you've had unintended weight loss or your list of safe quote unquote foods is becoming smaller. It's time to check in with a professional. Yeah. Good advice. So we know that a lot of patients with disorders of gut-brain interaction, specifically IBS, have tried the low FODMAP diet, um, but remind us what that diet therapy entails and what guides should patients follow when wanting to use this therapy if they don't have access to a GI dietitian? As you said, not everyone does have that access. So are there well-vetted digital apps or books that you would recommend someone use if they would like to try that diet? Uh, and then I guess I'll, I'll wait for your answer because then I have a, a follow-up to that too, but maybe just remind us what that low FODMAP diet is. Yes, that's a loaded question, <laughs> I would say. So let's start with the basics. Uh, FODMAPs themselves are small carbohydrates that are um, commonly malabsorbed in the gut and they are, because they're small, they can pull water into the gut and they are also fast food for gut microbes. They're so small that bacteria can eat them right away. We all have gut microbes and, um, and they love FODMAPs. And so when you have a lot of gas and water pulled into the gut, you have what we call luminal distension or stretching of the gut. And that can trigger some symptoms, especially in individuals with a sensitive gut, as is seen in IBS. There's more to the story, though, because we're learning that FODMAPs can um, incite immune activation via mast cells. They seem to enhance certain types of bacteria that have an endotoxin called LPS, which with the mast cell activation seems to lead to intestinal permeability. So there's lots going on that we're just starting to uncover with FODMAPs themselves and IBS. But a low FODMAP diet 
in the elimination uh, sort of stricter phase is a temporary learning diet. So it's a three-phase intervention where the initial phase is called elimination, and we put a patient on a very low FODMAP diet, restricting all the high FODMAP foods, anything from apples and onion and garlic and wheat. There's a lot of different high FODMAP foods, milk. We take those all out of the diet and we keep the patient there for about two to six weeks, depending on how quickly they respond, if they respond. Um, And if they do respond, then we move them on to the reintroduction phase. This is where we systematically add back certain FODMAPs that have certain FODMAP subtypes, like lactose, for instance, is an example of a FODMAP subtype. We would test their tolerance to adding milk back to their diet to see if that incites symptoms or not. If it doesn't, then we move them on to the the sort of the the personalization phase where we then would add back milk. And we would go through a variety of different food challenges to see what types of foods are triggering symptoms and which are not, again, with the goal to expand the diet as wide and with as much variety as possible in that personalization phase, only eliminating the FODMAPs that were identified in the reintroduction phase as triggering. So that's sort of the basis of that Uh, low FODMAP diet. It is the most studied diet in irritable bowel syndrome and appears to be effective in managing symptoms in about 50 to 70% of patients with IBS. It's been mostly studied in IBS-D, so it's important to note that. But in studies that have incorporated IBS constipation predominant patients, it did appear to help them as well. There's just less of that. Um, And then for books and apps and blogs and and, uh, to follow up with that really important question, because there are not a lot of GI dietitians out there and you do want to work with someone that is FODMAP knowledgeable. um, I will do a shameless plug because I do think it's a very good book walking the patient and even clinicians through the three, three phases of the diet. And that is my latest book with Day Day Wilson, the low FODMAP diet step-by-step. Um, for apps, the Monash University really has the gold standard app and it provides sort of a uh, traffic light uh, symbol type um mechanism where you can look and see, okay, if it's green lighted, it's low FODMAP. If it's yellow lighted, it is moderate FODMAPs. And if it's red lighted, it's high in FODMAP. So it's a good um, resource. Monash University is, they're really the pioneers in the low FODMAP diet and they're doing ongoing research. The app is up to date. And then for uh, blogs, uh, the Monash University has a wonderful blog. Um, I also have a blog at katescarlotta.com. UMichigan has additional resources. And my colleague, Patsy Katsos at ibsfree.net has additional books and resources as well. So that's a mouthful. That's great. Thank you. I think that was a really clear understanding of what FODMAPs are, as well as the the different phases of the diet, which again, I think, as you mentioned, some patients don't realize that there are three phases. They think elimination is the only phase, Um, but thank you for explaining that and and making clear the process of the diet. Um, So moving to other diet therapies, because we know that's not the only one for digestive conditions. Um, 
There are diet therapies for patients who have non-celiac gluten sensitivity or lactose intolerance. And um, as we know, lactose intolerance is a, is a pretty well-established carbohydrate malabsorption syndrome that can cause similar symptoms to IBS, such as bloating and abdominal pain and even diarrhea. Um, so many times patients are encouraged to avoid lactose. Um, and then just a side note is that the prevalence of lactose intolerance amongst patients with IBS has been noted in a recent study to be about 38%, which I think is quite interesting. I, I myself, an IBS patient have a, a lactose intolerance as well. So I can resonate with that data, but can you um, explain more about some of these other diets besides low FODMAP? Um, maybe what a non-celiac gluten sensitivity uh, diet might look like, or um, a diet for someone who does have lactose intolerance. Absolutely. So what, why don't we start with lactose? Lactose is very okay. interesting in IBS because you know, they've done research looking at um, individuals with IBS that experience lactose intolerance, which is different than lactose malabsorption. I think that's important mm -hmm. to point out. So you can malabsorb lactose, but not have any symptoms, but lactose intolerance is when you develop symptoms. In, in irritable bowel syndrome, they've found that when individuals experience lactose intolerance, they also experience that mast cell activation in the gut. So you can actually see the difference of these mast cells sort of lighting up in individuals um, with lactose intolerance and IBS. So the whole mechanism of that is very kind of interesting. They see um, more sensitivity in the rectum. Mast cells tend to hang out near nerves, the enteric nerves. So there's an association with mast cell activation and pain in IBS. Um, so just a little bit of an interesting tie there. Um, so you can have malabsorption and go about your business, or you can have intolerance and you feel, you know, really uncomfortable with lactose. So as a clinician, I'll always ask that, you know, what are your symptoms when you have milk products? Lactose itself is in what I call the wet part of milk. So some cheeses are very minimal. They're solid. So cheddar and Parmesan, they're aged. And most of the, the liquid portion of, of the milk is removed over time through the aging process. So very, very low lactose doesn't appear to be a problem for patients um, with lactose intolerance and IBS. Um, but milk and cream and ice cream and things of that nature, ric ricotta cheese in large amounts could be problematic. So you're really just removing, it's not a lactose-free diet typically that we would put on, but we would tell patients to reduce their lactose. Most patients can have up to a quantity of a half a cup of milk, which is six grams of lactose that is sitting. Um, so it's not, does not necessarily need to be completely restricted, but the tolerance is variable patient to patient. Um, a gluten-free diet is often utilized for non-celiac wheat sensitivity. Um, this is, so it's not celiac disease. And I know we're going to talk about right. that, what celiac diseases in a moment, but this seems to be when people ingest gluten, it, it trips up symptoms. And in non-celiac wheat sensitivity, not only do these patients have GI manifestations similar to IBS, bloating, and gas, they often have extra intestinal symptoms too, where they might feel brain fog or um, experience outside of the, of the gut 
type of symptoms. And on a, a diet for this, it's not generally needed to be strict, strict gluten-free, but it, we often call it gluten light. So in other words, they're reducing gluten, but they're not worried about cross-contamination right. of gluten in foods. Um, so, a, so a gluten-free or gluten light diet is often try, tried in, in IBS as well. The data for a gluten-free diet in IBS really is lacking. It does it, it appears when they really look deeply at the data that it is likely the FODMAP component of wheat, which is removed when you remove gluten, um, that's driving most of the symptoms. And these mm -hmm. are the fructans in wheat. Um, but there are some people that appear to be sensitive to that protein in wheat, barley and rye, which is gluten. And then there's other proteins that are found um, in gluten-containing grains called amylase trypsin inhibitors, which kind of got on the scene and had some, some you know, day in the press about maybe five to 10 years ago. And there's been less sort of emerging data looking at that, but it could be that there are other proteins in wheat that are driving symptoms in some people. Um, and there's also some data, which is kind of interesting, looking at an, an, an atypical wheat allergy. And this is in specialized confocal laser endomicroscopy studies, a very specialized endoscopy procedure where they've identified certain individuals with IBS have an atypical wheat allergy. And for those patients, they have found that they do, they improve when they take wheat completely out of the diet. Um, so the other diets that we might consider for IBS would be the NICE guidelines. These are from the UK where it's me primarily a cleanup where patients are encouraged to have regular meals, plenty of fluid, restrict caffeine, reduce alcohol, reduce carbonated drinks. So a general cleanup in some instances, um, the NICE guidelines can work for certain people. And then in clinical practice, adjusting fibers and fiber type, patients with IBS tend to do better with soluble, some types of soluble fiber versus insoluble fiber, which is found um, mostly in the skins of fruits and vegetables and also in wheat bran. That tends to be more problematic in some people with irritable bowel syndrome. So that's a mouthful again, but hopefully that was helpful. Yeah, that's really interesting. Now, um, I know, you know, today we're talking about diet as it relates to treatment of, of abdominal um, discomfort and digestive health, but what about patients who have other um, conditions in addition to IBS? You know, a lot of patients experience um, some co comorbid conditions like fibromyalgia, chronic migraine, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of other more somatic type, um, syndromes that a lot of patients have in addition to IBS. Do you know of any data? I know we didn't discuss this earlier, but do you know of any data or have you as a clinician seen in patients where some of those conditions are also benefited by diet? So interesting question and absolutely see the overlap with, with fibromyalgia, interstitial cystitis is another mm -hmm. one, um, yeah. migraines. Um, to, I really think uh, there's not a lot of data. There is some data looking at um, 
the, the incidence of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth in fibromyalgia. Um, so in that there may be a higher incidence in connection with in once that's eradicated, the fibromyalgia seems to improve. Wow. There's also some thoughts around mast cell activation in interstitial cystitis, migraines, and fibromyalgia. And as I mentioned, mast cells in the gut tend to be right by the nerve nerves, right. right? And mast cells release a lot of different chemicals, histamine being one of them and histamine, a low histamine diet um, in some patients with migraines tends to be helpful. So I think that the mast cell activation is a picture of those three things and yes. really identifying and is the mast cell activation due to certain types of microbes. So it's a gut microbiota driven issue. Um, I think maybe there is something there, but we need to see the, the data come out on that, but there's something there. And I think my thought is histamine is playing a role. Mast cell activation is playing a role and some kind of microbiota alterations is playing a role, but let's see it unfold. Yeah, that's interesting. There's so much on the horizon, I think, when it comes to these sorts of conditions and how food is going to play a role in that microbiota uh, process. So it's going to be interesting. All right, well, let's move on. Um, we know that there are other conditions that can mimic IBS. And one of them um, is sucrase isomaltase or SI, um, which is a, a pretty complex condition. And it's the sucrase subunit that hydrolyzes sucrose to fructose and glucose, while the isomaltase subunit hydrolyzes the alpha 1-6 bond of alpha limit dextrins to two glucose molecules. And so basically patients with SI can't hydrolyze sucrose and it's allowed to reach the colon and bacterial fermentation leads to an increase in gas production and gastrointestinal symptoms, which is very scientific. But what does that mean for patients, Kate? Break that down for us. What kind of symptoms might they be experiencing if they have SI and what kind of testing can determine if someone has SI as opposed to IBS? Yeah, this is a really interesting area. And I recently did a program and Dr. Bill Che came on and it was both of us were like, you know, you heard about it and it's like, nah, this isn't, this isn't really a big piece of this. Right. You know, we see congenital sucrase isomaltase deficiency in kiddos. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't see this in adults way after the fact what's going on. Um, but sucrase isomaltase deficiency, as you mentioned, will lead to sucrose intolerance. So inability to tolerate foods that are high in sugar. So as a dietitian, if I'm assessing someone and they're like, I can't eat pastries, I can't eat anything sugary. Every time I have sugar, I have diarrhea. That might be a red flag. Um, additionally, this sucrase isomaltase complex, as you mentioned, is breaking down starches as well. So the dextrins, so you will, may also um, see starch malabsorption and difficulty with starches, which sometimes can manifest a little differently than the sugar component with the diarrhea and the bloating. Sometimes with starch maldigestion, we see some upper GI nausea and fullness feeling. Um, and that may be, and I won't get into it due to 
the ileal break, which is a, a sort of a negative feedback mechanism when starch arrives in the colon, the body's kind of saying, hmm, this shouldn't be here. Why is it? I'm going to slow down digestion in the upper part of the GI tract. Maybe that's why it's happening. And patients can really have exacerbated upper GI symptoms. So sucrase isomaltase deficiency can come in two forms. It can be a genetic, they have patients present with genetic variants. The congenital form that we often see in kids is a homozygous. So, you know, all the gene, you know, more genes associated with the condition, but you can also have heterozygous condition where um, the patient has some genes that are associated with um, the production of the sucrose isomaltase enzyme. And the symptoms may be variable, maybe not as severe as what we might see in congenital, but not always. Um, but so you can have this partial genetic, you know, mutations, some of them, you can have a lot of genetic mutations associated with sucrase isomaltase deficiency, or you can have what we call acquired sucrase isomaltase deficiency. And this is due to inflammation in the gut. So just like lacto the lactase enzyme is is, um, you know, on the end of the villi in the intestine, these other digestive enzymes are there as well too. And so if there is inflammation ongoing with celiac disease, sometimes in small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or an in inflammatory bowel disease, you'll have a, you can have inflammation that reduces that enzyme complex production, um, in presents in what we call an acquired form. But when we look at small and uh, this, you know, sucrase isomaltase deficiency in irritable bowel syndrome, that's this growing data looking at adults and Bill Shea's groups really done some interesting studies. He presented preliminary sort of intermittent data. So they don't, they didn't have the full data set. Um, so, but when they looked at sort of this first round of research uh, results, they found that one in 10 patients with IBSD um, were positive for sucrase isomaltase deficiency. Oh. And they were measured that by disaccharide assay. Furthermore, Baha Majuri's group um, did a small study, I think it was 31 patients that had presumed IBSD or IBSM, a mixed type, and they found by, by biopsies, uh, duodenal, the disaccharidase assays, 35% of those had sucrase amazing. isomaltase deficiency. That's amazing. It's really interesting. And then Bill Che had done a randomized control trial on the low FODMAP diet. And what they decided to do was a subgroup analysis looking at the patients that did not do, you know, um, find relief on the low FODMAP diet. And they found that those that, um, that did not find benefit from the low FODMAP diet were more likely to have sucrase isomaltase gene variants. So even more interesting. And then other, other groups have looked specifically at these sucrase isomaltase gene variants and IBS and found that they are in fact more common in people with the diagnosis of IBS. So I think it's out there. Um, some patients will really benefit from either 
or a combination of getting an enzyme. There's an enzyme supplement called sacrosidase that helps digest sucrose alone. And then uh, attempts at reducing some of their starches because the, the tolerance to starches is very variable depending on the type of genes and the amount of different enzymes that help with starch digestion. But many patients will need modification of starch as well. And lastly, the gold standard appears to be the endoscopy with the disaccharidase assays. I will say there's been a very, 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 and I'm a little upset about this, uptake in having this testing available in adults. So even the big, I've been, I've a Boston-based dietitian. I have contacted local big hospitals in Boston and they are still not doing it. And it really just infuriates me, but uh, hopefully they'll start doing that. Another test called the C13 sucrose breath test is another test that's available. Um, it hasn't really, I don't believe is validated right now for sucrase isomaltase deficiency, but may pick up some patients that will benefit from treatment. So that's a mouthful again. Yeah, that is fascinating uh, data about the prevalence of patients with this. Um, I think there, there clearly needs to be more studies done on this and maybe, maybe more studies done that involve the breath test as a possible um, diagnostic. Obviously, we would think it would be cheaper and easier to um, administer versus a biopsy, but, um, but that's fascinating. I think a lot of patients who are struggling with IBSD symptoms, imagine what, what could be done if we could just test them and help them. Exactly. And raise awareness like this, this, you know, if these physicians weren't doing this great research, we never would have known that this is an issue in adults. It, you know, we would be thinking, oh, it would have been ruled out when they were children. Pediatrics. Um, Yes. yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so interesting, very interesting. I'm following it, very interested. I think this is some the next sort of big frontier. Yeah, great. All right, so we talked a little bit about celiac disease in, in your discussion around the non-celiac gluten or wheat sensitivity patients, but celiac disease um, is also sometimes an IBS mimicker as well. You know, a lot of patients are diagnosed with um, IBS before they get that celiac test done to see if they have celiac disease as the reason for their symptoms. And a lot of patients I know who have not yet seen a gastroenterologist for a, a, a workup and, a, and, um, a diagnosis are, are just, they just begin a gluten-free diet without a positive diagnosis first. Um, so I guess my first question to you as a dietitian is, is that advisable to do without a diagnosis. Um, but then secondly, can you, can you just better define what celiac disease is and how it is different from IBS? Yeah, absolutely. Let's start with the diet with what it is. So it's an immune mediated disorder and it's triggered by the ingestion of gluten. And when you consume gluten, it actually leads to inflammation, um, and flattening of the villi or villi at, villus atrophy is what is what we call that. And when you have these little villi or what help 
our body digest food and uh, where all the enzymes are, when that becomes flattened, individuals will experience a wide degree of malabsorption. Um, we often see patients with osteoporosis or low iron. Um, so it's a, it, it has a component of significant inflammation and it is treated 100% with a gluten-free diet. So it is very different from irritable bowel syndrome um, where we don't, we might see microscopic inflammation and IBS, but there's less of this significant layer of inflammation um, right. and villus atrophy. Um, it impacts about one in 130 uh, people in North America. And the average delay in diagnosis is about 11 years. What wow. I can tell you, interestingly, so I've been as a dietitian since 1987. And, you know, in the early years, it was like, what is celiac disease? And I think if I maybe had one handout on gluten-free diet, you know, it's just no one was going on a gluten-free diet on their own at that time. No one. Now we've got so many people self-diagnosing themselves, which please don't ever do. And what happens is even if you're on a gluten light diet, the test for celiac disease requires adequate gluten to the level of two slices of bread per day for about a month. And so oh. even if you're just modifying gluten, the blood test, the serology test that we do, or the endoscopy, which would be more of, you know, going inside and, and actually biopsying the duodenum, this is going to be inaccurate if you're not consuming enough gluten. And, you know, many people will say, well, I'm fine. I, I feel good. I'm not on the gluten. We don't need to rule out celiac disease, but you do need to rule out celiac disease because you're at higher risk of intestinal malignancy and further malnutrition of nutrients, bone health can be impacted. A number of things can be, but the malignancy is, is a problem. And so we need to know whether you have celiac disease or not. And so the other point here for the clinicians listening, if you're testing for someone for celiac disease, please ask, are you consuming gluten? Because often the test's negative, they say it's negative. And then I've got to go back to the gastroenterologist or the primary care doctor and say, this test is not accurate. The patient was not consuming enough gluten. Can we, you know, and it just, we're repeating a test that is unnecessary. So um, I feel very strongly, as you can tell about that, um, we have to be very careful um, you know, self-diagnosing or putting patients on a gluten-free diet without adequately ruling out celiac disease. Um, so, so there's that. Well, I think that's important for patients to understand and not self-diagnosing or just going on a restrictive diet um, without a diagnosis. I don't think that a lot of patients um, are, you know, who think they may have celiac are aware of the other um, health impacts that celiac disease can have. They, they assume it's just the digestion part of, of the condition. And so I think that's really important to hammer home for patients is that it's really important that you get that clear positive diagnosis and not a false negative, <laughs> um, because of, of what you've been consuming. Um, but th thank you for pushing that. 
No, absolutely. And I think, you know, when we're working with someone with celiac disease, it's never a gluten light diet. We, we, we're amping up the, the strictness, watching for cross-contamination. Right. Uh, are they using a separate fryer for the French fries you're ordering? Is the strainer appropriate? Is the cutting board appropriate? Where are you storing your gluten-free flours? Are they below a, a wheat? There's so much more detail that we go into for someone that requires a strict gluten-free diet. So, so yeah, it's really important to have the proper diagnosis. Yeah. So we are in the holidays. We're in December already. I cannot even believe it. We just finished our Thanksgiving holiday here in the States and a lot of patients with digestive illnesses really dread this time of year um, with additional social activities with family and colleagues, because that can mean a deviation from what they consider their safe foods and, and exacerbate their GI symptoms because of a change in their diet. So Kate, what can patients do to feel comfortable socializing around food and, and how can they communicate their dietary needs without that sense of shame or stigma about their condition? I think that's something that we hear from a lot of patients around this time of year. And I'm just curious about your thoughts on that. All such great questions. And I, you know, I can totally, um, you know, understand um, the holidays are stressful. And certainly when you're feeling stressed, that can it, it get, you know, exacerbate your gut symptoms. So making sure you keep your lifestyle in check as best as possible. And by lifestyle, getting adequate sleep, continue with your exercise regimen, um, really maintaining a, as low stress as you possibly can. And sometimes that might mean saying no to a few social events if you find that the, the stress level attending them is too much. Yeah. But I would say with holidays, a couple things that you can do, and that one would be keeping your alcohol intake in check because, you know, it's, it's a festive time of year, but alcohol is a GI irritant. It can lead to diarrhea and a number of GI symptoms. So just making sure that you go in with an, an alcohol agenda, um, keeping it moderate, one drink for women, two drink for men, um, start there. Um, I also think it can be really helpful to bring food to parties or let people know that are hosting that you require a special diet and ask what they're serving. Um, and if you have a good guest, uh, a hostess, I mean, they will be very probably forthcoming with what they're making. They'll probably be willing to make some menu adjustments if necessary. I always encourage people to eat a little snack prior to leaving for the event so that you're not starving and just left to eat what's there um, and always bring food with you. Hostess appreciate that. And at least, you know, you have one item that you can really go to town on knowing that you feel um, safe with that. And then when it comes to talking with people about your diet, first of all, your diet, I always say, mind your own plate because, you know, your diet's your diet and no, you don't need to offer any reason or rationale to anyone. That's, that's your private information. Um, but a line that I always just suggest if, if people need one is that I've been placed on a special diet by my doctor or dietitian to help manage my GI pain. And leave it there. 
You don't need to go on any further specific to what that diet entails unless the hostess requires that information to help you with her menu planning. Right. That's great advice. That's great advice. Um, so as we wrap up today, this has been such great information. And I just, again, appreciate your time in talking with us about these topics, but do you have any last thoughts or tips for patients um, regarding dietary therapies and working with a dietitian? Well, I think first and foremost, just to remember that an irritable bowel syndrome in most cases it appears the food-related reaction is a food intolerance reaction. And food intolerance is very much portion-driven. So what what the important takeaway there is that if you know that you have lactose intolerance, but there's only milk and you need to put a splash in your coffee, it's probably going to be okay. Um, It's you know, if you have an onion intolerance, which is rich in fructans and tends to be problematic for many people that have FODMAP sensitivities, you might not want to have the onion soup, but if there's a little stir fry onion on the side of the peppers and you push them away, you might be okay. So just remember it's the portion. If you had a whole container of cashew nuts and you had a really bad stomach ache, that's because cashews have FODMAPs in them and and on fat and fiber, and you just probably had too much of a good thing. It is hard to stop on those cashew nuts sometimes, but just remember, you know, you don't have to be black and white. There can be less strictness to the diet. The goal really is to stay curious with how food reacts in your body and keep testing and trying things. Many people on, for instance, a low FODMAP diet have that low FODMAP list embedded in their brain and they see a piece of watermelon that's high in FODMAP and they don't even have a bite of it. And yet a bite would probably be just fine if it's in your fruit salad. So again, stay curious, keep trying to test the waters um, so that you don't become too strict with your diet. Um, because we want more variety. It's better for our gut microbiome to have more different types of foods in our diet and just it's funner. So um, try to try to keep thinking that way and testing the waters and not to have such black and white thinking when it comes to diet, um, which is often not necessary in irritable bowel syndrome. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And then I think too, you know, and kind of tagging on to the behavioral therapy um, mindset is if you have too many cashews and it does cause some abdominal pain or bloating to know that it's not going to last forever. It's not, you know, the end of your life and your world and you can work around that and you can, um, get those symptoms to resolve and, and be able to move on. And I think sometimes patients fear that catastrophizing kind of reality and they build it up to this level that, um, the anxiety is really what's driving those symptoms and not necessarily what they ate or drank. Um, so kind of tagging the diet with the behavioral and the cognitive behavioral therapy mindset as well as is important. Totally agree. Totally agree. I think it's really easy for us to catastrophize and get in this sort of like cycle of worry, 
um, when we can just remind ourselves that this too shall pass exactly on, on our day. So terrific. Well, Kate, thanks again so much for joining us. If you have any questions for Kate regarding diet therapies for your patients, please send us a note. We'll pass those on to her and get you some answers and be sure to join us on Tuesday night IBS for our December Twitter chat. Kate will be our guest and we'll be answering your questions live on Twitter beginning at 7 PM Eastern time. So we're looking forward to that as well. Thanks so much for joining us for another session of Tuesday night IBS. We'll see you next month. Take care, everyone. Bye now. follow the conversation on our Twitter page at hashtag Tuesday night IBS. We host live Twitter chats on the second Tuesday of each month at seven o'clock PM Eastern time with our monthly guests and encourage you to join in the conversation. In addition, check out our page on Facebook at Tuesday night IBS and find video presentations provided monthly by our guest experts to further guide our learning and conversation about these important topics. See you next month.